there is emerging research telling us that we have a very pronounced and very significant gender well-being gap. So the research is telling us that statistically more women than men are experiencing stress and burnout. There is still a perception that women are less ambitious than men. So to compensate, they're always on. They're applying to the emails around the clock. The increased digital load that comes with the mental load is often more pronounced for women. Women are the ones getting the bill email notification and then the text message saying your account's going to be debited. Women we know tend to be in more school communication platform. I think it's our increased digital load that is also causing this stress and burnout. How healthy is your relationship with technology and how does it impact your happiness and overall well-being? What is the best way to have a healthy relationship with your phone that doesn't cause brain drain? And how can we guide our children to get the best from digital but without the disadvantages? Hi, I'm Nicole Sharanam and welcome again to Connectedly. Today's show, we have Dr. Christy Goodwin and she's sharing the truth about our digital habits and how we can use them without that brain drain that comes along with it. So Dr. Christy is an award-winning researcher, speaker, author, and mum on a mission to help parents and educators to raise happy, healthy children and teens who thrive online and offline. She's the author of Dear Digital, We Need to Talk, and Christy shares realistic, research-based micro-habits that people can apply to tame their digital habits and to thrive in a digital world. Prior to becoming a speaker and consultant, she worked as an educator for 14 years with schools in both public and private sectors. She also has lectured at Macquarie University and University of Notre Dame and has completed a PhD on the impact of digital technologies. Without further ado, here's Dr. Christie. Hi, Dr. Christie. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you here too. And we were just having the most interesting discussion about. Uh, what's going on in life today. But before we jump and share that with everybody, I'd love to just know a little bit about what you do so that then we can explain why that's relevant. Sure. (laughs) So I'm really interested in how technology is shaping our brains and bodies. I believe that as humans, we have a biological, sometimes I talk about a neurobiological blueprint that we cannot outperform, that we cannot ignore. And I believe that our digital habits, both professionally and personally, Um, are often incongruent with how we are designed to function, behave and operate as humans. I call our neurobiology our human operating system or our HOS for short. And I believe that we have adopted some really unhealthy digital habits and practices in ways that are totally incongruent with our human operating system. So initially I I studied the impact technology was having on screen ages, i.e. kids and teenagers. But in the last um, probably eight years, my research and interest has broadened because I think none of us are immune to the digital pool. We all get sucked into the digital vacuum and our digital habits are having a profound impact on all of us. So that's what I'm interested in. But it's not about demonizing the technology because the reality is it's here to stay. Um, So it's all about how can we harness it, but harness it in ways that will help us rather than harm us. Mm, Gosh, I love all this. It's so juicy because you know, you're right, we can't demonize it. It is literally a part of our lives. It's something that if we were to almost push it aside, it almost disadvantages us in a lot of ways. And and it is how we connect. Absolutely. I often say technology at its core is a conduit for connection. One of the reasons why social media platforms, group chats, uh, why multiplayer video games for many of our young people have become so incredibly popular is because it taps into our most basic psychological need for human connection. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with self-determination theory and self-determination theory says our three core psychological drivers, connection, competence, and control are fulfilled so beautifully in the online world. And so this is where it can become the double-edged sword because I can be connecting with my colleagues on Teams or Slack. Um, You know, I can be having a Skype call or a Zoom call with a colleague or a family member who's living internationally. And there are certainly benefits. But the flip side of that is that when we're not in control of the technology, we feel like we have to be connected 24-7. And our brains and bodies just aren't biologically designed to operate that way. So it's that, that 
I often say, to be honest, I, I often say to people, I have a really complicated relationship with my phone. I say it's a little bit like the relationship I have with my husband. Really, you know, hard to live with at times. Couldn't imagine living without it. And it's always turned on. And so <laughs> it, yep. it's, it's, it's messy, it's complicated. And I think we're the first generation of adults who are really trying to figure this out on the fly. You know, mm. there's no guidebook, there's no frame of reference to how do we integrate the myriad of technologies we now use, both professionally and personally, into our lives. And that's why I think we've, in some ways, adopted some unhealthy habits and, and behaviours that are really, really um, having an impact on us. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into these unhealthy habits, let's talk about today. So <laughs> so just to, to give us a really great real world example. Mm. So we had telephone issues and internet issues. Do you want to talk about that and how it impacted you? Yes. So we are recording this on, hopefully it is just one day, uh, where over 10 million Optus customers had no phone and no internet access. Uh, we're approaching now uh, nine hours without those. Now, I got up this morning. I had an interview at 5 a.m. Sydney time for a, a client who was in Spain. Uh, couldn't get onto the internet. I thought that was odd, but realised after a couple of hours when I went to the local coffee shop and they couldn't process transactions, when a whole lot of bewildered people were looking around saying, what do we do? Uh, that it was actually a, a national outage. And it really has exemplified to me how digitally dependent we have become in our lives. All of us, as I said, professionally and personally, um, everything from how we bank. I have not been able, um, until I just have arrived at my husband's office, to even send or receive messages. I couldn't send or make phone calls. I haven't been able to check, you know, the myriad of WhatsApp messages that might impact my kids. I haven't been able to triage my inbox, which I'm sure is bulging. And so it has really amplified how tethered to technology we are. And again, as someone who would like to consider that they have some good, healthy boundaries, it has exemplified um, our reliance. And not saying, you know, in many of those instances, it's a functional role that technology is playing. Um, but I will admit, I haven't looked at Instagram. I haven't been on any social media platforms. Um, I haven't used any collaboration tools. So my day is markedly different. Mm, and how that um, exacerbates, you know, the stress and the, oh gosh, what do I do now? Because it does really highlight to me how much control it has over us. So let's talk about what, what are the negative impacts that, that the digital world is kind of having on us and how do you see, like, what, what, what are some tips for us on how to kind of live harmoniously with this yeah. technology? So I like to say, I think because we're not often using technology in ways that are aligned to how we are designed to, to operate as humans, um, what has happened is we're seeing increasing rates of stress, exhaustion and burnout. Um, and I think that is a, a very overt manifestation of some unhealthy digital habits. Now, it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge there are other extenuating circumstances as we record this podcast. You know, people are under increasing financial pressure. There's a lot of global uncertainty. Um, we have been through, you know, a pandemic. But I also think in many ways, and it's often really subtle ways, that our tech habits are impacting us. So one of the things that I like to say, I believe technology is particularly making us feel stressed, exhausted and distracted. And the reason is two things. The first thing that technology has done is it has introduced tiny little micro stresses into our days. Now on their own, these would be relatively benign. They would be harmless. Um, these are things like alerts and notifications, um, multitasking, video meetings, um, even the fact that we have a very narrow gaze when we look at a screen, that can trigger the stress response because biologically as humans, we are designed to dilate our gaze and look at things in the distance. The second thing that has intersected at exactly the same time is that I believe our tech habits have eroded, I may even say annihilated, the biological buffers that were not once naturally baked into our days as humans that used to bring us back to a stress baseline. Things like human connection, sleep, physical movement, um, even the way that we breathe is being radically altered by screens. Um, as humans, we are biologically designed whilst we're awake to sigh every five minutes. 
It doesn't have to be the very obvious teenage, I'm angry, exasperated sigh, <laughs> but we should be sighing while we're awake, um, unconsciously, roughly every five minutes. It's a natural biological mechanism to regulate our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. However, when we are looking at a screen, that narrow gaze, you know, our eyes looking at a very small surface area triggers the stress response. And so we don't breathe anywhere near as much. There has been a condition study called email apnea. Literally wow. where people go into their inboxes, they hold their breath, they dump a whole lot of cortisol, their heart rate accelerates, their pupils dilate, and they're having a physiological response to emails. And so I think it's the collision of these two factors. We've added little micro stresses into our days and we've eroded the buffers that used to help us mitigate or manage our stress response. And to be honest, I think it's these two factors combined as to why people are increasingly um, more stressed, exhausted and distracted. Far out. This is huge because as you're talking, I'm realizing I'm holding my breath and I'm like, breathe, Nicole, breathe, Nicole, yes. breathe, Nicole. <laughs> we do. Um, and it's, and it, it is, as I said, very subtle, but very pervasive mm. ways that technology is impacting us. There's the more overt ways, um, you know, we're more sedentary than we've ever been. And, you know, as humans, we're not designed to do that. Um, we are designed to be physically active. Um, when we move, we make a whole lot of neurochemicals like dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. They're fancy words for chemicals that do two things. They help us feel good. They help us focus. Yes, we as humans, this applies to our children, our teenagers and adults, are increasingly more sedentary than we've ever been. And so there are cascading consequences of this sort of digital immersion that we have exposed ourselves to or thrown ourselves into. But the other part, and this is where it becomes a bit of, a, I guess, a digital dilemma, is that we are reliant on it. You know, we've now got new ways of working and we've got kids who will enter a workforce and a world where technology will be at the epicenter. So it's all about how can we live with it in healthy and helpful ways um and that is where i'm what i'm really passionate about sharing with people great let's share that because that was my next question what, what can we do because i'm terrified now i don't i want to get off this meeting <laughs> <laughs> please don't do that uh, and please don't don't stop listening to this podcast hopefully you're out walking at the same time i'm um, getting your movement in getting some sunlight i mean that's even a really another really interesting thing is that many humans are not getting anywhere near the required amount of sunlight per day. Mm. Researchers at the moment are, are arguing between whether it's 90 minutes or 120 minutes per day, but it's somewhere between an hour and a half to two hours in that vicinity. Now, sunlight does a whole lot of things for us. Um, we know sunlight in the, the first hour of waking up um, resets our circadian rhythm. So 16 hours later, our body will naturally produce melatonin. We also know that sunlight in that first hour activates our hypothalamus. So it puts us in a really alert, focused state just by being out in sunlight. But most people today wake up and they pick up their devices they, and they stay inside. Um, we also know sunlight's really important for eye health. Um, increasing rates of myopia in children, teens and adults over the last five years have been documented. And one of the theories is that we're not getting anywhere near that sort of required 90 minutes at minimum of sunlight exposure per day. So what do we do? It's not about doing a digital detox. It's not about cancelling a Netflix subscription um, or, or trying to do inbox zero every day. They're outdated, redundant strategies. What I think we have to do is to find ways to use technology so that it aligns with our human operating system. So one of the things I talk about doing um, is working in alignment with our biological rhythms. Two that are really important for people to know is one, we're not designed to work in marathons when we're on a screen, we're designed to work in sprints. And this is because we have an ultradian rhythm, meaning that we will go through a peak roughly for every around 90 minutes, and then we'll inevitably hit an energy and a focus trough for about 20 minutes, give or take. Now, we have to work in congruence with that. So sitting down in front of your computer and trying to work for four hours straight is a surefire way to work against your neurobiology. So we're designed to work in a sprint and then have a break, sprint and then have a break. But the problem today is that many people's break is, you know, is considered scrolling social media, checking the mm. sports report, replying to the myriad of WhatsApp messages. 
um, checking when Optus are going to connect you back to the world on the internet. <laughs> um, I might be speaking for a friend on that one. Um, but we don't even give ourselves the opportunity for a break. Um, and as humans, our best ideas germinate when we're unplugged. I don't know about you, Nicole, but I've never solved a complex problem or come up with a really creative idea in an Excel spreadsheet or in my inbox. They happen <laughs> in the shower, when I'm going for a walk, a swim on a plane with no Wi-Fi or a holiday with no Wi-Fi. Those ideas and creative solutions germinate. So we have to work in sprints and we have to take breaks um, and real breaks. The other thing we need to the other biological rhythm we have to work um, in alignment to is something called our chronotype. So as humans, we have a chronotype that biologically determines what time of the day we are most focused and alert. And this is determined by something called our PER3 gene. So you can't manipulate it. You can't change it. It will, however, change throughout your lifespan. So most people's chronotype, um, the most dominant one, is what we call a bear. And their energy peaks typically between 10 and 2. Um, then we have wolves. They're the sort of afternoon or evening people. They're your annoying colleagues at work who send you an email at 11 o'clock at night. They're your friends who book the, the cinemas at 9.15. Um, and then a smaller proportion of people are lions or the early birds, and they fire on all cylinders early in the morning. They're your friends who suggest you meet for a six o'clock walk, um, and they've probably done two hours of work before they come to meet you for a walk. Uh, they're your colleagues that say, let's have a 7.30 meeting um, a.m., that is. And so the trick is to know when our chronotype is and to where we can ring fence that time and build a fortress around our focus. Because when we are distracted and we are now living in an age of digital distraction, not only is the interruption disruptive for us, but it takes the average adult 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back into a deep focus state after they have been distracted. It's called the resumption lag. So we have to try where we can to build a fortress around our focus and eliminate as many distractions as possible. So working with our biology is certainly something we can do. So work in those sprints, roughly 90 minutes, take good breaks, um, work with your chronotype and build a fortress around your focus during those times and it will have a huge impact on your well-being and your productivity. And that is really interesting to me because um, everything you've said is interesting to me, but especially that I know that I'm a lion and I never knew what that was, but everyone thinks I'm that very unusual person. Like, <laughs> why do you get up so early? I I'm, I'm get up at four and I'm up for hours and, yeah. you know, I'm with <laughs> sprinkling you. flowers. Oh, good. Totally. I'm a lion. And it's interesting because both my mum and my maternal grandparents were all early risers. So there is certainly a genetic component to it. Um, which is really, really fascinating. Uh, and, and it's interesting, lions are usually quite happy and bears are happy with their chronotype. It's usually the poor wolves that are quite disappointed and want to morph into another chronotype because westernised society really isn't set up for them. You know, they would thrive in a country like Spain, you know, with, you know, late night parties and, and late starts to the day in the middle of the day siesta. I mean, they mightn't even be awake in the middle of the day. Um, but Yes, society is really geared more towards those bears and lions. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do remember when I've travelled and I could not do, without a massive siesta, I could not do the Spain times yeah. where they go out <laughs> go. at 9pm. I'm like, no, no, no. It's bedtime. I'm going to bed. I'm with you. <laughs> I'm already in bed with my cup totally. of tea. <laughs> totally. Oh, God, I don't know when that happened in my life, but anyway. <laughs> So, so tell me some of the biggest challenges that women are facing today in terms of finding that balance between the digital and, and their well-being and happiness, you know, how do we, how do we really with that, what are the big challenges and how do we, how do we fix that? How do we resolve it? Because you've talked about some tips on, you know, that we've got to have, uh, do what was a sprint? Was that the terminology? Mm -hmm. A used? digital dash. Um, a digital dash. And I want to know how long that digital dash should be. I need some frameworks around that because yep. I'm going to start implementing this. Good. But um, yeah, what are, what are some really um, kind of solid tips you can give us around that? Good. So I'll answer the, the latter part of that question as in how do I, um, what, does a, what does a sprint look like? And it is unique to each individual. 
Now, we do have, as I mentioned, old trading rhythms, and they are roughly about 90 minutes in duration. So it is very uncommon that you will be able to sit down and work really solidly doing, you know, mentally taxing work for more than 90 minutes. Some people, it will be less than 90 minutes. It's not a hard science. Um, it, it really is a rough estimate, but this is also why we tend to sleep in 90-minute cycles. So that ultradian rhythm continues throughout the day and night um, period. So what I say to people is sit down when you're trying to do your focused work and figure out a cadence that works for you. For some people, it will be 70 minutes. As I said, very few people will really be able to go past sort of 120 minutes. That would be my suggested absolute maximum threshold. Um, now, some people say, but what about the Pomodoro technique? So for those listeners who I'm sure many of your listeners have heard, the Pomodoro technique suggests that you work for 25 minutes and then have a five-minute break. I actually don't. I like the premise of like working and, and, and breaking that sort of interval approach. I don't necessarily think that 25 minutes is enough. Um, I actually think we can do more than that. And so I think if we apply the expanded, like imagine the Pomodoro tomato just being that bit bigger, I think getting closer to that 90 minutes is a suggested framework. So if mm. we structure our day like that, the ideal workday would be that we would ideally have four of those 90-minute sprints and a 20-minute trough. Now, some of your listeners may be listening to this and saying, Christy, there is no way that I can possibly work for 90 minutes and then lay on a yoga mat for 20 minutes and then work for 90 minutes and lay out in the sun for mm. 20 minutes. I wouldn't get my work done. During that trough time, you most certainly need to take rest. So the recommendation is at least two to 10 minutes of rest. We call, I call them piccolo breaks, small, short, powerful, punchy. Mm -hmm. The rest of that sort of 20 minute period, that 18 to, to 10 to 18 minutes left could be spent doing what we call shallow work. So you're less taxing, less exhaustive you know, less demanding types of works. work. Is it triaging your inbox? Is it doing more of your admin tasks? Is it um, making a quick phone call? Is it replying to DMs on social media? Whatever would be less exhausting. Now, the trick is if we can get four of those digital dashes or those sprints done, we will get so much more work done, especially if we are lining it up during that sort of peak performance window. Um, so working with that, that sprint met mentality and working with our chronotype um, really, really can make a difference. Um, I want to go back to your, your earlier question around what's, why is this affecting women? And um, women, you're not imagining it. Uh, there is emerging research telling us that we have a very pronounced and very significant gender well-being gap. So the research is telling us that statistically more women than men are experiencing stress and burnout. And mm -hmm. I think there's a myriad of reasons for this. One of them, it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge that despite the progress we have made, women still tend to absorb the domestic and caring responsibilities in most relationships and family structures. Even if you do not have children, Women tend to be the one organising the family gift, coordinating the Christmas get-together. Um, the second thing that I think is still happening is that there is still a perception that women are less ambitious than men. So to compensate, they're always on. They're replying to the emails around the clock. They're you know triaging their team's messages at 11 o'clock at night. So from an optics perspective, it looks like they are responsive. The other thing that's quite interesting is that some research is coming out telling us that even in corporate roles, women tend to take on the well-being role. This is not often tied to their KPIs. So women will, mm. will fulfill this need, um, but it often isn't measured in terms of their output. Now, if we look at each of these factors, I think the thing that accompanies each of them, maybe not the latter one so much, but with the, uh, definitely the earlier two, the increased digital load that comes with the mental load is often more pronounced for women. Women are the ones getting the bill email notification and then the text message saying your account's going to be debited in two days and then the email saying it was debited and the text message to confirm the same thing. Um, women we know tend to be in more school communication platforms, the WhatsApp group, the, the school email list. Um, if you've got aging parents, it tends to be not always, and I'm, I'm you know, sounds like I'm mm. making stereotypes, but I think it's our increased digital load that is also 
causing this stress and burnout. The other thing I think is we are as females working against our neurobiology. And I think I would hope your listeners resonate with this. Our most fundamental psychological need is connection. We are hardwired to be part of a group, to be part of a tribe, to connect. When we are spending hours a day with a screen, even if we are using a screen to chat to our friends, send text messages, send a funny meme, it is not the same as in-person connection. A study was done and they compared what happens inside our brains when we have text-based communication compared to in-person communication. When we have text-based communication, our brain increasingly produced cortisol, the stress hormone. When we had Mm. face-to-face connection, our brains released oxytocin, the social bonding, the love hormone. Wow. There's no replica for that. Um, And so I I just think it's a collision of all of these factors um, that are really working against us. And we have to be just so intentional to remedy the situation because I am worried that this will get worse before it gets better. We haven't even started Mm. to look at AI and the metaverse and all these new technologies on the horizon. If we have got a problem now, this problem will be magnified in the coming years ahead. Mm. Far out, I feel myself, my stress levels are rising. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I'm adding to it. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, because I have so many thoughts coming up. It's actually making me a little bit emotional because there's a there's a part of me that thinks I know I think the, the there was a few things that popped into my head and I'll try and segment them one was it, it is obvious that that then there, we still have such a big massive lack of self-worth as women and that is the reason we strive so much to to show that we can do all these things and we can show our boss that we can be that person working at night and still be online and yeah. and all of these things to keep going and that that's still something that is crucial for our gender to start working on you know to really um to so we can stop doing all of that it's it's exhausting thinking about it you know yeah. and 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 the other part i was thinking was um i've got so many notes here i was thinking about how how does this um implement, you know, in a workplace, for example, how does this, how does a workplace implement this? Because a workplace wants to get their people, keep them productive. So, so that's great. And they want to keep their people working and they want to make money. And I can't see any workplace that I've ever worked in going, sure, go outside and take 20 minutes and do some yoga every, you know, (laughs) every 90 minutes. So how does a workplace implement this? So I'm working with a number of corporate teams, both large and small organisations in Australia and internationally. And one of the things I'm helping them with is to establish what we're calling their digital guardrails. So articulating what your tech expectations are as a workplace. What What are the parameters? What are the digital norms, practices and principles around how we use the technologies that now are an essential part of our, our world? Uh, everything from email response rates, after hours communications, are uh, cameras on or off in video calls? Um, do we have a communication escalation plan? Because many people feel like they can't switch off because what if I miss something really important? Mm-hmm. So they're on the lounge watching Netflix and they're triaging their inbox. Um, mm-hmm. And this is really unhealthy. And so taking the time to actually articulate what works for our organisation, even at a team level, Um, in terms of this, because we are already seeing uh, there's legislation in federal parliament being tabled at the moment around the right to disconnect. The Victorian Police Force, the Queensland Department of Education already have clauses in their enterprise bargaining agreements around this right to disconnect. So I think we need some some digital guardrails, some parameters. Um, I also think it's about working with companies to get them to understand how can we optimize human performance is it, it is by aligning our ways of working with our human operating system and so getting them to understand you know we are designed to work in sprints the other thing i didn't mention before is that we only have a 4 to 6 hour battery life on our prefrontal cortex so the part of our brain that does all our heavy lifting and our thinking it only has a 4 to 6 hour battery life per day So if you are sitting down doing really taxing, challenging work for 12, 13 hours a day, you're simply working against your neurobiology. 
So we've got to try and think, and again, it's about educating workplaces. Um, and I guess this ties into something when you were just talking before about what, you know, why are women experiencing this? Um, I think we still have, as, and I say this as a woman who has wrestled with this myself, I think we are still revering patriarchal models of success. Mm-hmm. The hustling, the grind, the always on, doing more, being productive. It's, it's not, you know, we, we're being told, I, I heard someone say this the other day and it was so beautiful, we're being told to lean in and we just want to lie down. Um, mm. I just thought that was such an apt description and I think mm. the reason that this gender wellbeing gap is, is becoming prevalent is because we are not honouring the way we are designed to function and live as, as females um, and that we are trying to adhere to outdated, industrialized models of productivity. Given that many, not all people, are knowledge workers now, the number of hours that you work is not necessarily equated to your output. Mm. You know, it's not that you're producing widgets or you're on a factory floor and, you know, for every hour you work, you're producing. It, and so I think we've got to have a bigger conversation about, firstly, what are our success metrics? And secondly, what does performance and productivity look like if we are knowledge workers? Mm. Mm. Before when you were talking about when I said I was getting a little bit emotional, one of the other reasons I actually got a little bit emotional was because my heart is always with, I, I live in a regional, somewhat regional area in Victoria. I'm in Torquay. And um, obviously there's other greater regional areas around us where people are isolated. And the lo- loneliness thing is huge. And, and that's part of the reason I want to do this podcast is, is building connection and finding ways that people can find connection without necessarily having a neighbor next door. Yep. So so how bad is it? I mean, I mean, on one hand, we're connecting, I guess, right, with Absolutely. people online. So yep. that's great. But but how do we merge that? How do we bring that together? You're just saying the balance will still benefit if we're doing both, Absolutely. If we can. And I don't think we need to create an either-or situation. As you yep. acknowledge, people who are geographically isolated, um, we know a lot of uh, first-time or, 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 or single parents find the online world as their only conduit for connection. Um, so I think it's about the and. How can we use this digital world that's now an inherent part of our lives? Um, but how can we use it in ways that will serve us rather than enslave us? And how can we then use it as a catalyst to build real connections? I have made some incredible professional connections, some incredible personal friendships that stemmed out of an online connection. Um, I never would have had the opportunity to meet these people had I not heard them on a Zoom call. I hadn't sent them a DM on LinkedIn. Um, we didn't exchange a, an email um, e- exchange. So I think, yes, it is a, a, a great way, but it can't be our only way. The other thing I want to draw your attention to is your, your, this is a serious public health issue, so much so, um, and I'm talking to, about loneliness here, that the US Surgeon General has written a brilliant paper um, elucidating the many physical and psychological health consequences of our increasing rates of loneliness. I often say technology can make us connected, but disconnected. We can Mm. be together, but alone. We can be online, but we can also be offline. And Mm. so I think it's about us being intentional about how we use it, when we use it, with whom we use it, you know, choosing who you follow on social media, curating your feed, um, having parameters around when you're going to use it so you're not, you know, not getting enough sleep, um, just being more purposeful and mindful of how we're using it and, again, so that it serves us rather than enslaving us. Um, a really sobering statistic is that um, research estimates that the average Australian adult will spend 17 years of their entire life on their phones. Oh my god. 17 gosh. years. Huh? 33% oh my gosh, that of makes our waking me feel hours. Ugh. Yeah. And again, mm. if some of that is certainly productive, helpful, collaborative, communicative experiences, absolutely no doubt. But a lot of that is often time we regret. Um 
I share a story in my book. I had a serendipitous meeting one day at a coffee shop. Um, I was waiting for a friend who was running late. And normally I would pick up my phone and, you know, triage emails or check social media or the weather or reply to the 18 WhatsApp messages sitting there. But for some reason this day I didn't. And the lady sitting at the table next to me, also waiting for a friend, we struck up a conversation. Now, I didn't tell her what I did for work. Um, I said to her, what do you do? And she said, I'm um, a palliative care nurse. And I said, wow. And she said, um, she explained she'd been um, in that occupation for 30 years, 30 years in palliative care, hero, like amazing, Mm. incredible human. And I spoke to um, this lady called Tess and she proceeded to, to talk to me and I said to her, have you read Bronnie Ware's book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying? And she said, yes, I have. And then she leaned in and she said, but there's a sixth regret. And I said, what's that? And she said, today, the sixth regret is more and more people saying they wish they'd spent less time on their devices. Oh my gosh. And I, I want us to got... get to the end of our lives. And I don't want our kids to get to the end of their lives and saying, I wish I could get that time back. If we don't control technology, if we don't create our own digital guardrails, if we are a slave to our screen, then technology will rob us of our two most important human resources, our time and our attention. And so that is my life's work, to help people forge healthy, helpful, productive relationships. It's not an anti-tech do a digital detox message Mm. because they don't work. Detoxes, just like juice detoxes, do not yield Mm. long-term sustainable changes. It's how can we learn to live with it um, in those healthy, helpful ways. Okay. So, oh, man, this this, this is all so... No. (laughs) It's not all doom and gloom. This stuff is fascinating and, and you're right. It's how we use it and intentional living. And I think what comes up for me is knowing that there's a lot of people in this world that are unhappy and disconnected and so they're using their phone because of that. It's an avoidance strategy. It's a coping mechanism. And then the problem is because we have a negativity bias as humans, we will tend to click on the news story or scroll or hover over the social media post that has a more negative connotation and that fuels the algorithm to serve us more of that content And so that only makes us more, you know, anxious, more frustrated, more depressed, more likely to segregate us from other humans. And so it is a really vicious cycle. Um, Yeah. What is this negative bias? What's that? Tell me about that. So as humans, we have um, a negativity bias. So we are designed psychologically to look for negative things. It was a way that we evolved as a species. Um, so we, we, we to keep us safe. Yes, is that why. Like, yes. Okay. Yeah. okay. Is there a tiger on the horizon? Is this a safe area for us to go? But today we don't have those same um, physical stressors. But it's the negative headline. It's the clickbait. It's the mm. you know what, what you know why we look at car accidents. It's why we hover what? over the the social media posts that has you know something confronting. Um, this is why we're seeing really polarizing views on social media, um, because we are drawn to that, that 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 bias. And again, the way the algorithm works means that whatever we are watching, whatever we are commenting on, whatever we are viewing, fuels the algorithm to serve us more of that. Mm, wow, wow! It's like stuff on top of stuff on top Isn't of it? stuff that we've got to try and. <laughs> Yeah. So how can we then, you talk about the distractions that we have when we're working and I know I am the queen of multitasking and I, I don't say that proudly yeah. and I do watch a movie while I'm working because I'm trying to fit work in where I can. Mm-hmm. I have a five-year-old, so, you know, how do we limit these distractions? What t- tricks can you give us? I mean, I have 27 screens open <laughs> at a time. There's a name for that. They call them tab hoarders. <laughs> Tab order. <laughs> I don't want to be a tab order. It just it's how it works. Yeah. You know? So our our brains aren't designed to multitask. When we multitask, when we're trying to split our attention, our brain is burning through glucose. So that's our energy supply. It is releasing cortisol, the stress hormone, and we actually don't retain information. So instead of information um, being stored in the hippocampus, which is the brain's hard drive, when we multitask, it goes to a part of the brain called the striatum. So we actually won't retain the information when we're trying to do multiple things Mm. at once. So what I say to people is when we need to build a fortress around our focus, some really pragmatic things to do. 
is when you want to be present with your loved one. You're going out and having a cup of tea with your mum. Um, your child's home from school and you want to be present. You want to get some deep focused work done. You're on a date with your partner. Put your phone somewhere where you cannot see it. Research from the University of Austin, Texas told us that even if our phone was on silent and face down, if it was within our line of sight, it dropped our cognitive performance by around an estimated 10%. Wow. Basically seeing our phone is a brain drain. It makes us about 10% dumber. We know just the mere presence of a phone in a meal area significantly impacts the quality and quantity of conversation and the perceived enjoyment of the meal. Um, so put your phone somewhere where you cannot see it. I also have three golden rules with notifications. One, disable all non-essential notifications. You know, do you really need the LinkedIn notification of the humble brag of your ex-colleague telling you <laughs> about their new promotion? So. <laughs> Number two, learn how to bundle or batch your notifications. Um, if you do not want notifications interrupting your day, you can now nominate what time or times of the day those notifications come to you rather than them dribbling in throughout the day. And number three is create VIP lists so that when you activate focus mode or do not disturb mode, everybody gets blocked apart from those people on that list. Is that your children's childcare, your aging parents? Uh, is it a colleague or a client and you're working on a time-sensitive project and they do need to get through to you? Is it your partner? Um, is it your mum? Is it your dad? Like it, the choice is, is at basically your discretion. But those three rules in managing notifications, because notifications trick our brain into thinking that they are urgent and important. Mm. Because biologically, we have brains that were designed to go and forage, hunt and get information. But when unsolicited information comes to us, pings, alerts, notifications, reminders, our brain says potential stressor or danger, I better look at it. I better open it. Now, the fact that it will vibrate, the fact that it's often in a red notification bubble, and then you get a number declaring how many unread messages you've got, amplifies that need to think that it's urgent and important. Do you know what comes to mind when you talk about this pinging and these notifications is the old uh, Apple Watch that people are getting around with. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's a condition called phantom vibration syndrome and people literally have a tingling feeling where their watch is often worn or where their phone is on their body. And I think this amplifies just how much of an impact technology is having. Um, I personally don't own an Apple Watch. I know lots of people who do, but for me, it would be another source of distraction. And because it goes can potentially go anywhere, anytime, it, 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 it exemplifies this un inability, I should say, to switch off. Um, mm. For me, it's just a no. I have some issues as well or concerns, potential concerns about, you know, constant Wi-Fi exposure. Um, so I've made a, a decision that that's not the product um, for me. Are you comfortable talking about the Wi-Fi thing? I'd love to know what your thoughts are and, and how you can limit that our exposure to Wi-Fi. I don't know much about it. but Yeah, look, I'm not an expert in this space, but I um, have read and attended a, an electromagnetic radiation conference and some papers in this space. And we, I want to be very clear here, we don't have proof of harm, but to do experimental studies where we do have proof of harm on humans will probably be you know, impossible. I don't know anyone that's going to sign themselves up for an experimental study that says, yes, let me be your guinea pig and see if it exposes, you know, the exposure is harmful. From the studies that we have with rodents, there is a possible, and I want to amplify that word, possible risk of harm. Um, and so my husband tells everybody now, Christy's become a Wi-Fi warrior and a Wi-Fi warrior. I follow the American Academy of Pediatrics advice, and that is with children in particular, um, we need to adopt the precautionary principle. Until we have, you know, evidence that it is safe, I think we need to minimise their exposure. So keeping routers out of high traffic areas in the house, turning them off when not in use, uh, not using your telephone. You know, when you do the Wi-Fi dance to pick up the signal, um, your phone is pumping out radiation to pick you up a signal. You know, when you go in an elevator or um, you go underground or in a really poor reception area using it on speaker or using wired headphones when you're using it. So I think there are some things we can do, um, keeping it off your physical body, um, mm. but some really realistic, achievable things that, you know, aren't too extreme. 
um, but things we can do to hopefully minimise our exposure so that if, if there is possible harm, we've at least minimised that potential risk. Mm. Thank you. And, and that actually is a good segue because I was thinking about our children and I know my five-year-old has, um, she thinks phones are pretty cool and it's obviously what she's learned from mum and dad, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not proud to say. Yep. Um, and she has used my iPad to watch, you know, a movie and a long car trip or whatever. Um, <clears throat> what's a good way to help kids not get addicted and to not end up in this trap that we're all falling into? Given that they're, I mean, my five-year-old knows how to do things I don't know yep. how to do. She's five. Yeah, they can be your tech support people. They really can at home. They can be very helpful at times. Um, I, I've got a couple of things to say here. First and foremost is that the human brain has mirror neurons, meaning we are biologically designed to imitate and copy. So this means as parents, we need to try to be really good role models. Um, does that mean we should never use our phones or laptops around our kids? Absolutely not. They need to see us use them. They also need to see switch them off. And I'm worried that we are potentially missing micro moments of connection with our kids because we have unhealthy digital habits. You know, it's swimming lessons when your child finally nails the tumble turn and they come up and their caps off and their goggles are filled with water and they look up at you to give you the thumbs up, but you miss the moment because of your phone use. Um, so I think first and foremost, we have to be good digital role models. And then my three messages for parents when it comes to um, raising kids in the digital world is we have to be the the pilot, not the passenger of the digital plane. And to be the pilot of the plane, we have to get three Bs right. We have to establish boundaries around screen time. We have to protect their basic needs and we have to allow them to be bored. Boundaries, mm. basic needs and boredom. If we can create those parameters for our kids, our kids will thrive in the digital world. Um, but we have to be that pilot and create those boundaries with them, not on them. We need to have far more boundaries other than just how much time they're spending on screens. We need to be looking at what are they doing? When are they using them? Where are they using them? With whom and how? Um, we've got to fiercely protect their basic needs, making sure that screen time isn't eroding you know, their sleep, their physical movement, their connection, uh, play. Um, and we also have to make sure that they're bored, that they know what it's like to experience big feelings. And because I'm worried, when a child today often experiences a big emotion, anger, disappointment, frustration, boredom, they're often placated with a screen. And I am concerned that this can be potentially dangerous territory if we are bypassing those big emotions. Wow. So interestingly, I thought of a story when, when you were talking about when your kid's swimming, there's another side of this, which is just that level of distraction. I was at a, I was actually in Bali and I was swimming in the pool and there was a family sitting in the pool area. There was actually three families all with kids and uh, a young one, maybe two, um, was down the end playing with a tap by the end of the pool. And I looked down at my phone and I was actually trying to get a podcast going and I heard all of a sudden a parent swear and the parent went running and I've just broken out in goosebumps. The parent went running because the kid within seconds had gotten into the pool and was under. And the fear of these three families, we all felt the exact same thing because the kid came up and he wasn't breathing and they had to take him out. And he came back very quickly, he spat the water out and the kid was you know, like, whatever, get on with it. You know, he was, you know, resilient and, and moved on. But the family and the other families and myself, we were mortified. We couldn't believe that we had not looked for three seconds to look at our phones, to put on a podcast or to do what it was that we were doing. And that's just a whole nother level of distraction and things we can miss out on. Yeah. It's just so serious. I mean, that, that was seconds and that kid could have been gone. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. It's, um, yeah, this is a huge issue for all of us. And even if you're not a parent, you know, what I often say to people, what micro moments in your life are you missing out on? You know, if you are, is it, is it, you know, when you go to have coffee with your dad and you're sitting there dealing with the work crisis, is it, you know, not being present with your partner because your phone keeps pinging or you see the email notification dance on your screen and you know this is not good news if it's coming through at Friday at seven o'clock. Um, you know, we don't get our time and our attention back. And 
we are seeing warning signs around places where children often congregate asking for them to be adequately supervised. I think that's a red flag that we're in some unhealthy territory when it comes to our tech habits. So it's not, again, it's not saying, and it's not shaming parents, you know, I've done that. Um, the reason I'm so passionate about talking about this topic is that years ago, I had a, a very serious accident with my son, Billy. Um, Billy was 15 months at the time and I opened the lid on my laptop to send one email. He decided he was cancelling his nap that day and I ambitiously scheduled a work call during his anticipated nap time. Um, and I opened the lid on my laptop just to send one email. And I saw that avalanche of emails come in and I went down the digital rabbit hole and I wasn't watching Billy. And Billy fell face first off the lounge, smashing his face, requiring urgent hospitalization because I was distracted. So the person mm. that researches and speaks and writes about distraction couldn't even tame her digital distractions. And so this was the catalyst for me to say, why is it? Why do we get sucked into the digital vortex? What is it about the online world? Um, and I don't want anyone to face those dire consequences. We were lucky. You know, he had a fat lip. I had a terrible dose of mother's guilt. Um, I will say, though, that two weeks earlier, he'd done the exact same thing when my husband was dutifully supervising him. So I'm suggesting that the significant oh. wound he encountered was a, a reopening of an existing wound. Um, but it was horrific. Um and such a reminder for me, we've got to get this right. We've got to take back control because I think the harsh reality is many of us are slaves to our screens. Absolutely. Do you have any thoughts around the whole ADHD and, and multitasking with our phones? Is there a link there? I do. I have, um, and this is a Christie hypothesis, but the, the, the research is emerging to substantiate this hypothesis. I think a significant number of particularly children and teenagers are being clinically misdiagnosed as having ADD and ADHD. Now, again, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that, 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 that it is in a real condition. It absolutely is. Um, however, I don't think the diagnosis rates should be as high as what they are. I think for our kids in particular, what is happening and for our adults is our nervous systems are being completely dysregulated. We also know for children, one of the things we, we know for sure is that their screen time is displacing some of their basic physical and psychological needs. Now, children need to develop something called their vestibular system. And your vestibular system gives you a sense of balance. If you've got a really good um, sense of balance, you can sit and pay attention. If you have an underdeveloped vestibular system, you look like you've got ants in your pants. You can't sit still, you fidget, you, you cannot focus. Now, how do we develop our vestibular system? Rolling, rocking, tumbling, crawling, climbing. But if we have kids dunked in the digital stream at earlier and earlier ages, and it is displacing the time that they once had for that physical movement and development, they don't have fully developed vestibular systems. Now, that may not be the case with adults, but I think what is happening for us is those micro stresses and biological buffers, and that's combined to make us feel stressed. We're in this elevated sympathetic nervous system state constantly. That's not how we're designed to operate as humans. Mm. So what would be a healthy amount of time for a kid, do you think, to be? Oh. Can you give us kind of a rough idea? Let's say for my kid, for example, she's five. She's, she's rarely on there, to be honest. So, you know, what would be a healthy amount of time for a kid her age? And then let's say a 10-year-old, just yeah. as an example. So that's the million-dollar question. I am asked this by parents most frequently, and I don't try and dodge the question, but I, I, I actually say there's actually no prescriptive digital dose that you can give based on a child's chronological age. We have government guidelines, um, and in Australia, for 5- to 12-year-olds, the recommendation is no more than two hours of sedentary screen time use per day. In a day? A day. But my concern... It seems excessive. Well, it's not. The average Australian, um, Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital did a study, and the average 5- to 12-year-old was estimated to be spending an average of 32 hours a week outside of school on screens. Holy dooly. Yeah. So... Given that it's hard to, to give an exact number, and the reason that I don't is because that two-hour limit has actually never been empirically validated or scientifically proven. It's based on a best guess of what the displacement effect might be. What I say to parents is imagine a glass jar and it's 20, representing 24 hours in a, in a child's day. 
inside that glass jar, you're going to put in polystyrene balls and they'll be various sizes according to how much that need takes up. Inside that jar, you have to put in their most basic physical and psychological needs. Connection, sleep, play, movement, nutrition, um, I say relate, I think I did say relationships, um, all the rudimentary things that we know for optimal development and well-being. And then once all those balls go in, there'd be some white space around those that we could fill up with screen time. But what's happening at the moment in Australia and internationally is we start with an empty jar and what's going in the jar first? Screen time, screen time, screen time. And those basic Mm. needs are falling out. I'm often asked, is technology causing the mental health crisis we have in many young people? It is contributing, but it's not the causal factor. It is what screen time is displacing. And our three most basic human needs for optimal mental health are being shaped relationships, sleep, and movement. And that is why we're seeing these adverse consequences. Mm, Wow. There's lots to think about here, I think. Mm. So thank you. The conversation's been so amazing so far. I I just have the quick fire round to go through with you to finish off. So tell us, uh, what is your favorite book? And it can either be of all time or just right now. Favourite book is uh, Greg McEwan's Effortless. It's all about how we can achieve and do more with less efforting and hustling and grinding. Mm, Yes, less hustle. I like the sound of that. What are you trying to unlearn? Oh, how to be a doer and always on that A-type productive measures of success, um, really disentangling from, as I said before, those patriarchal models of success. Mm-hmm. Here, here. I've, I used to always call myself an A-type and now I've told myself that that's yeah. just what I've been telling myself. Totally. So I, like <laughs> I totally that. agree. Yeah. <laughs> Best advice about happiness that you've ever been given? Oh, I had a powerful conversation with a friend recently um, and we were talking about success and she said something to me that stuck um, and that is success is living in close proximity to your values. And I think that's, we could take the word success and happiness. Happiness is living in close proximity to your values. Mm, Absolutely. If you could wave a fairy wand, what would you change about the world? Oh, our digital habits. I would make them, you know, the technology we all use less appealing and addictive. Um, And I'd tell the world just to slow down. Yeah, beautiful. Tell us one practical tool that we can put into practice right now today that will help make our lives more connected and happier. Have a digital curfew. So try to switch off your technology 60 minutes before you go to sleep um, because we know not only do our screen habits impact the quantity but also the quality of our sleep. And when we get good sleep, we can turn up and be the best person that we can be and we can connect with others in a really meaningful way I don't know about you, um, Nicole, but I certainly turn up as the low resolution version of myself when I'm not getting enough sleep. So if we want to really build connection with others, getting good sleep um, and having that digital curfew will certainly help. Just on that, I've got one more question for myself. (laughs) So I listen to um, audio books when I'm going to sleep. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's fine. Um, If if you were watching something, I would have more of an issue, but... um, Listening to something can be a lovely way for us to unwind at night. Audio Just book. turn the Wi-Fi off maybe. Yeah. Um, even if you – and I often say try and keep your phone out of your bedroom. So can you put a speaker in your room so that the phone's not there the first thing when you see it in the morning or if you wake up to go to the bathroom during the night? Mm, I'm so glad I get to listen to my book still at night. Yeah. <laughs> Permission granted. <laughs> Thank you so much, Christy. It's been so lovely to have you here. Thank you for having me. I will share some of the links uh, for your resources in the show notes. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you or to look up your books, they can do so. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. You too. Wow. That was pretty juicy. I've got a few things that I certainly need to implement in my home. Uh, What about you? So a few takeaways, digital habits impact well-being. Unhealthy digital habits can lead to increased stress, exhaustion and burnout. It's important to recognise the effects of technology on our mental and our physical health. 
work in alignment with biological rhythms. Understanding our biological rhythms, such as the ultradian cycles and chronotypes, can help optimize productivity. Working in focused sprints of around 90 minutes, followed by short breaks, aligns with our natural patterns. Digital gender well-being gap. Women may face a more significant gender well-being gap due to factors like absorbing domestic responsibilities and the perception of being less ambitious. Increased digital load, particularly in managing family and school communications, can contribute to stress and to burnout. Setting digital boundaries. It's crucial to establish boundaries around screen time, both for ourselves and our children. This includes knowing when to put the phone away to fully engage with the people around us. Your children are watching and they will learn by what you do. Protecting basic needs. Screen time should not encroach on essential aspects of our well-being, such as sleep, physical activity and human connection. Prioritizing these needs helps us to maintain a healthy balance in our life. Mindful technology use. Being intentional and purposeful in our use of technology can lead to a more productive and fulfilling life. And this includes managing notifications, choosing when and how we engage with our screens and curating our digital experiences to serve us positively. Wow, Dr. Christie was simply amazing and I can't wait to re-listen to that because there was so much in it. But thank you again for joining me and just remember that we can use our technology in a positive way. We don't have to completely shy away and go and live in a cave. It just needs to be done intentionally. Thank you for listening. I'm so grateful to be on this journey with you. And remember, you are loved and you are worthy. 